Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Graken Center for Addiction at Boston Medical Center, making long-term recovery a reality for patients like Cassie, who now supports others struggling with the disease. You can see Cassie's story and learn more at bmcaddiction.org. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In the fall of 1960, a controversial figure faced a major test. The man was John F. Kennedy. And the test, in some sense, was religious. Kennedy had to prove that he would not confuse worshiping with governing, that the papacy and the presidency would not be interlinked. I believe in an America where the separation of church and state is absolute, where no Catholic prelate would tell the president, should he be Catholic, how to act, and no Protestant minister would tell his parishioners for whom to vote, where no church or church school is granted any public funds or political preference, and where no man is denied public office merely because his religion differs from the president who might appoint him or the people who might elect him. When America was young, Thomas Jefferson had written that there should be a wall of separation between church and state. But in the last several decades, a different vision of church and state has helped to fundamentally reshape our politics, an evangelical vision. It was invented by leaders who understood that evangelical Christianity could recast American government and that something new could emerge. But like building a successful business, building a new brand of politics happens step by step. And perhaps no one has taken more of those steps than the phenomenally popular Reverend Billy Graham, who has met and often influenced presidents since Harry Truman. But he was particularly proud of the inroads that he made, starting with Kennedy's predecessor, Dwight Eisenhower. He said, do you know any good Presbyterian churches in Washington? And I said, yes, I certainly do. To make a long story short, he joined a church, and the minister baptized him publicly. As president of the United States, he took a public stand for Christ, and he chose as his favorite hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Daniel Williams is author of God's Own Party, The Making of the Christian Right, and he's a professor at the University of West Georgia. He joins us to talk about how evangelicals reinvented politics. Daniel, welcome. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. So if we go back to that test that JFK had to pass in 1960, um, in some ways, I think people would think... He passed. I mean, he became president. But in some ways, he did not, because that speech that I played uh, was given in Houston, Texas, to a bunch of Protestant ministers. Um, and he, JFK largely failed to get Southern Protestants to support him. And you can talk about this, but you say after JFK won, evangelical leaders like felt terrible. Yes, they felt like the Protestant establishment that they had enjoyed in the Eisenhower years was no longer there. And so in many ways, they started to react against that. I think the full mobilization of the Christian right did not occur until the late 1970s, but you could see seeds of that developing uh, even during the early 1960s with reactions uh, against Kennedy, uh, reactions against the uh, Supreme Court decisions on school prayer and Bible reading, uh, and concerns about the moral drift, the perceived moral drift of the nation. What was it in the 1960s, uh, do you think, like, after, obviously, this Catholic president had been elected, that made evangelicals feel like, 
we can have growing momentum here, that we can change politics, that there can be sort of a rising tide of evangelical influence? Well, there were several things. One was that evangelicals themselves were becoming more educated. They were gaining access to the corridors of at least uh, media power. Uh, that became more mm. apparent in the 1970s than in the 1960s. But uh, there, was a, there was a growing level of, of socioeconomic power um, on the part of, of some conservative evangelicals. And at the same time, there was a perception that they had uh, that the nation was changing for the worse. So uh, in the 1950s, uh, President Dwight Eisenhower, uh, in their view, had been their friend. Uh, he had been very uh, willing to bring references to God into his speeches on the Cold War. It, famously, mm. he, in his, uh, at his inauguration, he led a prayer and, and then repeatedly invoked God. Uh, and John F. Kennedy didn't entirely distance himself from that. He continued to embrace some aspects of the civil religion, but there was definitely a shift. And there was also a cultural shift in the nation the beginning phases of the sexual revolution of the 1960s, for example, um, by, by the mid to late 1960s, a, a growing anti-war movement. And so evangelicals who, were, who identified with, with cultural conservatism and political conservatism felt on the defensive, perhaps more than they had uh, in the previous decade. Can you give me a sense, um, obviously evangelicals are Protestant, but what uh, makes somebody call themselves an evangelical and not just you know, a Protestant? Like, what's the distinction? If you ask, if we ask somebody, what, what would they say? Right. Well, I, th I think that's an excellent question. And it's actually, the answer to that uh, is more complex uh, than, than one might assume, because I think the boundaries, uh, especially in the 1950s, were somewhat porous. But in general, when people talk about evangelicals, uh, they tend to define that by someone who believes uh, in the authority of the Bible, someone who believes in personal salvation, uh, through uh, faith in, in Jesus, and someone who has uh, at least uh, a leaning toward an evangelistic uh, style, that is, to, to try to convert others uh, in order to be part of uh, the Christian fold as well. Um, they would recognize that evangelicalism is a particular Protestant tradition that perhaps uh, can trace its roots back to the First Great Awakening of the 18th century and then the revivals of the 19th century and then on into the 20th century with both the fundamentalist movement uh, and Billy Graham and then the Christian right. Uh, it's not identical uh, with Christian right conservatism. Not all evangelicals are Republican, but it has certainly had a close relationship in the 20th century with the conservative tradition, uh, so that evangelicals who have not identified with conservatism have certainly been le fully legitimate evangelicals, but have been a minority, a political minority within their own tradition. Mm. So here's a question that gets a little bit into scripture, um, but I've wondered about it for a long time, actually. Um, if evangelicals believe in the authority of the Bible, um, and maybe more literally than, than some other Christians, and then you take uh, the famous line from Jesus, uh, you know, where he's saying that a camel is more likely to get through the eye of a needle than a rich man is to get into heaven. So I wonder about that because, you know, this is the gospel. But in America, almost everybody wants to get rich. So if you believe that the Bible is pretty much right, it's hard to question it, um, how do evangelicals square that and accept rich people or, you know, like, or even try to make money themselves. There are evangelicals on the left, perhaps most famously uh, Jim Wallace and, and Ron Sider and a, a few others who have 
pushed back against that evangelical alliance with capitalism. So not all evangelicals would fall into this camp, but I think you're right in saying that the vast majority of those in the United States would, and especially in the time period that we're talking about, the 1950s and onward, there was a very close relationship between evangelicalism and capitalism. Uh, What I would say is that evangelicals in general in the United States for the last two centuries have made peace with the marketplace, both by emphasizing Uh, salvation only by grace through faith. In in other words, they would read that particular verse from the Gospels and then want to follow that up with the statement that Jesus made, with men this is impossible, with God all things are possible, and and emphasize that, you know, Mm. even the rich person can be saved. But then the question is, well, why would you strive to get rich if you know this is is actually going to to be at odds sort of with the message of Jesus? make things harder. And they would say that um, they, they would view themselves in some way as redeeming the marketplace. That is that they've, evangelicals have tended Uh, both in the 19th century with people like John Wanamaker and then in the present with people like the Green family associated with Hobby Lobby uh, and everywhere in between, evangelicals have tended to believe that a faithful evangelical Christian is going to make money and then use that in some way to further the kingdom of God, support missions, support uh, evangelistic enterprises, even in in the case of the Christian right, support uh, conservative political programs. And so in some way they view themselves as, yes, engaged in in an activity that maybe in and of itself um, would be problematic, and, and they do talk about the temptations of riches, but that can be redeemed by someone who is who's trusting the Lord and then using those riches to further the kingdom of God. So that that's the way that that American evangelicals have, in general, navigated this mm-hmm. tension between right. uh, riches and faith. Let me uh, bring into this conversation Darren Docek, who's a professor at the University of Notre Dame. He is the author of From Bible Belt to Sun Belt, which looks at the move of many evangelicals from the South to other parts of the country, specifically California. Um, And Darren, I I wonder if you want to weigh in on this issue of faith, which Jesus says means stepping away from riches. And like, how does that work? How does that square with capitalism in America? Um, And then probably not incidentally, we obviously have a very rich president who was supported by evangelicals. So do you want to comment on this tension and, and just what we see going on here? No, and Daniel stated it very well, uh, the theological uh, and, and some of the tensions as well within, and that that point is worth emphasizing. Again, there is a long tradition of uh, taking a social gospel seriously uh, within evangelicalism. Uh, certainly into the 20th century, there was uh, plenty of incentive within a large uh, kind of number of evangelical communities to support the labor movement, for instance, uh, and to assume progressive causes. This goes back to abolitionism in the mid-19th uh, century. What, what we would think of now, it sounds like evangelicals used to support what we think of now as kind of liberal causes. I mean, the labor movement, right? right? And right. social justice. Okay. Right. Uh, and, and taking that, that verse that you stated earlier, uh, again, to heart and, and seriously. Mm-hmm. But, but again, there's also pragmatics involved here. There's also socioeconomics. Uh, theology matters, but it also is, I think, wrestled with uh, in changing social circumstances. And as the 20th century unfolds, in the early 20th, we've got uh, the rise of a very prominent liberal social gospel, which, according to many evangelicals, is taking kind of the social justice side too far to the detriment of this kind of personal salvation as the core message. Uh, and then again, especially as Daniel emphasized in the 1950s, and we've been talking about Eisenhower, uh, in the war with communism, this becomes an, an all or nothing uh, scenario. And capitalism is wedded to Christianity, to evangelical Christianity quite firmly at that juncture. With regards to Donald Trump, of course, what we do know is he was able to seize 
on this kind of pro-capitalist side of evangelicalism, especially the prosperity gospel, which is itself is a creation of kind of the post-World War II moment, uh, where all of a sudden, especially in the poorest regions of the country, those inhabited by thousands of Pentecostals, uh, mm. they are seeing their own lives transformed uh, by the rise of a post-war economy. And for many of them, uh, that becomes justification for a gospel that doesn't just support capitalism, but says uh, quite explicitly that we receive our blessing and we uh, can kind of fully articulate it through the success that we uh, generate in the marketplace. And, and mm -hmm. so it's not just uh, you know, kind of two realms wedded that, at that point. They are very much folded into one, uh, one logic and one rationale. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm speaking with Darren Dochuk from Notre Dame and Daniel Williams from the University of West Georgia about how evangelicals and religion affect politics. Um, Daniel Williams, uh, how would you describe the uh, current evangelical political platform and how would you say that it has changed over the last 40 or 50 years in terms of like what the top most important goals are? Well, I guess about 40 or 50 years ago, as the Christian right was emerging, the priority was to make the nation Christian once again. And I think the people who were most prominent in the Christian right of the late 1970s and early 1980s were largely people who had been born in the 1930s, people like Jerry Falwell, people like Pat Robertson, and then uh, someone who was emerging on the scene, uh, Jim Dobson, uh, James Dobson of Focus on the Family. And all of these people were part of a generation that had uh, reached political consciousness during the early years of the Cold War. Uh, and then they had seen the changes of the 60s and 70s, and they believed that they could essentially turn the clock back, so to speak. But hmm. as evangelicals moved into the 21st century and as a new generation came to uh, dominate the political landscape, I, I think that evangelicals, while still retaining some aspect of that, uh, were no longer as confident that they could recapture uh, the nation's institutions. And so certainly in the last election and in several election cycles before that, uh, the major priority was not necessarily to make the nation Christian once again, but as they would see it, to protect their own uh, religious liberty. Abortion uh, moved to the top of their agenda, followed closely uh, in the uh, late 90s and, and early 21st century uh, to opposition to gay rights and to same-sex marriage. And in some ways, the modern uh, Christian right, while far more decentralized than the Christian right of the late 70s and early 80s was, retains that interest in trying to protect against what they would see as a violation of social justice in, in the form of mm. abortion. And then in the, in the case of opposition to, uh, to LGBT rights, they would see that as protecting their own religious liberty. And, and that, I mm. think, is a shift. In the early 80s, issues of religious liberty weren't quite as prominent. When Jerry Falwell spoke out against uh, what was then widely described as homosexuality in the, in the early 80s, uh, he was doing so not to protect the rights of churches or, or evangelical Christians or evangelical institutions. He was, he was actually trying to restore what he saw as a, a moral standard that was sliding. Whereas I think uh, today uh, there's, there's more of an emphasis simply on protecting uh, the rights of of individuals and institutions, uh, perhaps not to not to endorse this or not to be affected by it, and hmm. and in some way that's a retreat uh, in the in the culture wars, um, and also a a shifting of priorities and perhaps a sign that that evangelicals sometime in the 1990s or thereabouts uh, began adopting 
some of the language of pluralism and and huh. uh, liberal based rights rhetoric uh, themselves and talking about protecting their own uh, religious interests. Daniel, um, certainly in the last election, even if evangelicals are on the verge of, of splintering or diversifying in some way, we saw a lot of unity around President Trump. Uh, about 80 percent of evangelicals voted for him. 16 percent voted for Hillary Clinton. You know, you did have people saying this is a guy who's, you know, been divorced a few times. He owns casinos. But I, I talked to Francis Fitzgerald, uh, who wrote uh, the recent book, The Evangelicals, The Struggle to Shape America. And she said, interestingly, that many in the leadership, uh, in the evangelical leadership, did not like Trump during the primaries in 2015 and 2016, but their followers did. During the primaries, um, something like 50 uh, Christian right leaders got together and decided to vote for Ted Cruz. Uh, they found that uh, not many of their, their people followed them in this. Um, you know, there was, was a substantial evangelical vote for Cruz, but, but there was an even bigger one for Donald Trump, and this, this puzzled them um, uh, more than it even puzzles us today. <laughs> uh, Daniel Williams, do you want to talk about um, what was the appeal of this candidate, not an evangelical, but clearly... Uh, united most evangelicals behind him. Yes. Well, I think we have to differentiate between several stages of, of the support. And so in the primaries, I think it's absolutely true that uh, Trump had very little support from evangelical leaders and some strong condemnations from evangelical leaders. And a few of those evangelical leaders, perhaps most notably uh, Russell Moore of the Southern Baptist Convention, continued that opposition through the general election and beyond. But most of the other evangelical leaders came around eventually, and because they were concerned about the Supreme Court, they decided to vote for uh, Trump. And had it not been for the Supreme Court, I'm not sure that they would have made that decision. Uh, of course, that's a hypothetical. And is that, would you say that is like 100% or close to 100% about abortion? Uh, it's primarily about abortion and overturning Roe v. Wade, but also in their minds about what they would call religious liberty. That is, they saw the Obergefell decision on same-sex marriage. They were afraid of another decision on transgender issues or similar things, and they were afraid that very soon they would be on the wrong side of the law if they continued to oppose uh, LGBT rights. And so I there see. was a real mm -hmm. fear. And, and of course, okay. on the other side, many people said that the fear was exaggerated. But regardless of whether you think it was a legitimate fear or not, I think the evidence is that that was a genuine, heartfelt fear. That They feared that they would in some way be, and they, they commonly invoke this language, persecuted if things continued culturally in the direction in which they thought they would. Um, I think you're also right to note the difference uh, in the primaries and in the general election between the political priorities of, of the evangelical leaders that tended to talk about mainly abortion and the traditional Christian right issues versus those of what I would say that were the evangelicals in the pews, or in many cases, the evangelicals who didn't even show up at the pews. I mean, many of these people who voted call themselves evangelicals, but, but were mm -hmm. less likely to go to church than maybe Republicans uh, voting in for some of the other primary candidates. And, um, and that's an interesting phenomenon that has been understudied mm -hmm. Uh, but I think it's clear that there is a cultural evangelicalism that is perhaps divorced in some way from the, the traditional pronouncements of evangelical leaders. And among those cultural evangelicals, uh, their political priorities 
uh, reflect a lot of what we would think of as rural populism. That is uh, strong opposition to uh, undocumented immigrants, uh, strong concern about the loss of jobs to uh, overseas markets, uh, concerns about international borders, concerns about uh, U.S. foreign policy, and uh, in some ways, uh, if it's not a neo-isolationism, at least it's a strong uh, America First movement. And I don't think we yet know where this is going to go. I, I think it's still too early to make predictions about the future of the Christian right or the, or the future of the cultural evangelicals. But certainly the data from the last election would suggest that the picture is maybe a little more complicated than what uh, some have, have assumed. And, and both Darren and I have emphasized some, periodically in this discussion that, that evangelicals are are not monolithic, and maybe that's more apparent than ever, that there are a lot of different subgroups within evangelicals that in some ways today are not even always on speaking terms, uh, that you know, some, some of them are, are going in very different directions. Well, let me pick that up, and then either of you can take it. Um, we saw Lawrence Ware uh, recently, who's a black scholar, a minister, he's been in the Southern Baptist Convention for about a decade, say he was leaving um, because he saw too much support in the convention um, of the alt-right, which clashed with his uh, commitment to social justice. So this can be for whoever wants to take it, but is that indicative of of a rising divide or of, uh, you know, a guy or or a small (laughs) group of people? Well, I I think, uh, and uh, just to emphasize, uh, evangelicals are, as I've said earlier, pragmatic. They're principled, but they're pragmatic. Uh, And many of them in this past election, no doubt, were also voting uh, for pocketbook issues and voting for uh, racial issues. Uh, And however they position themselves on the spectrum, but uh, in large part, those with Trump, of course, uh, worried uh, about immigration and and so forth. And so there's a spectrum of concerns that, that drove them and drove many of them towards Donald Trump going forward. Uh, I think it's, uh, as I I said earlier, uh, this could be a juncture. Uh, We have seen evangelicals, you've just mentioned one, uh, whether it be Latino, African-American, or uh, those who are trying to position themselves in a more centrist evangelical uh, evangelicalism, uh, trying to re-articulate what it means. Some are abandoning the term evangelical altogether because of its uh, Mm. association with uh, the Trump movement and with politics in general, and, and that has been going on within uh, kind of intellectual circles within evangelicalism. Uh, young people uh, also, you know, kind of dissenting, expressing dissent through through their concerns and, and their shifts in concerns. And it's instructive, I think, to look back to the 1930s talking about America first. I mean... Yeah, America first is not uh, is not a new slogan. Right, and, and, and America, America first was in the 30s driven by uh, a large number of fundamentalists. Uh, and it was an effort to distance themselves from that... Uh, kind of uh, political momentum uh, that the National Association of Evangelicals was formed in the 1940s. And so there was a direct response in many ways to the more radicalized politics of evangelicalism in the 30s to shift it back to the center. Billy Graham was very influential, uh, bringing evangelicals back towards a center. Uh, We could be at, again, one of those moments now where there is going to, because of the clear, forceful Mm. articulation of the Trump America First agenda, there is going to be perhaps a a larger segment of of evangelicals who are going to say, we either abandon the term uh, or we totally remake this, uh, certainly within political terms and, and again, reshift our focus. 
Darren Docek is the author of the book From Bible Belt to Sun Belt, Plain Folk Religion, Grassroots Politics, and the Rise of Evangelical Conservatism. And he's a professor at the University of Notre Dame. And Daniel Williams is author of the book God's Own Party, The Making of the Christian Right. He's a professor at the University of West Georgia. Thank you so much to both of you. Thanks, Kara. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Kara. As the political power of evangelicals grew, one of their own emerged as a dark horse candidate for president. We will have more on our website about how evangelicals rallied around Jimmy Carter in the face of a media establishment that seemed to have very little sense of what evangelicals were. And then, four years later, why those same evangelicals abandoned Carter for Ronald Reagan. That's all at innovationhub.org. 